And we're going to look at John chapter 13, 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we have covered verse by verse through the Gospel of John up through chapter 12, and that chapters 1 through 12 constitute section number 1 of John's Gospel. And that section deals with three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry where he preached about the kingdom and performed kingdom miracles that uh, identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So today we begin the second major section in the Gospel, and it covers chapters 13 through 17, and it focuses on one day only in Jesus' life, where he privately gets away with his disciples and has a conversation with them. Now, in chapters 1 through 12, the key words were light and life. Remember those words, light and life? The key words in chapters 13 through 17, uh, or the key word in chapter 13 through 17, is the word love. It's used 37 times. Okay? And that's really important because that's what this whole section is on. So, <clears throat> chapter 13, we're going to cover verses 1 through 12 today. I was going to cover 20 verses, but as I got involved in the study, I realized it was too much, and uh, it's a very complicated area, because it deals with foot washing, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and what does it mean, and it can be very confusing, but I thought I'd take a smaller chunk, lay it out for you so that it makes sense, and then the rest of the chapter will also make sense. So... Chapter 13 opens with a summary. So verse 1 is a summary okay, of that which is to follow. So let me read it to you. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now what I want to do is unpack this verse for you. And the first thing I want you to know is the timing of the verse. Look at the look at the uh, when the when of the events. Look what it says at the beginning of verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover. <clears throat> now Passover begins on Friday, Friday evening, and uh, the feast of Passover unleavened bread goes on for seven days. So this event takes place before the Passover. Probably takes place on a Thursday evening. So that's the when of the event. How about the what? What's going on here? Well, skip down to the last phrase. It says this. Before the feast of the Passover, now right down to the end of the verse, look what he did. He loved them to the end. See? He loved them to the end. Now, it's important to notice that this word love is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's an act. Jesus does something. What does he do? He does what? Loves them. See? Uh, love as a verb means giving, sacrificial giving. He gives to them in some way. We're going to find out how he gives to them in a second. Now notice how long he loved them. What does it say right toward the end of the verse? He loved them to what? To the end. To what? What does that mean, to the end? To the end of what? Yeah, probably to the end of his life. 
his, end of his life is only three days more. See? So it could be the end of his life. It could mean he loved them, uh, you know, to uh, completion. He loved them to the utmost, but probably most likely to the end of his life. Now, what's the basis for him loving them in this, in this action-oriented way? Well, watch. Look, let's read the verse again. Now, watch this. First of all, the basis for him loving them is a realization. Okay? Now, look at what it says. Now, when the feast of the Passover was over. Now, before the, excuse me, before the feast of the Passover, watch this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Based on that realization, he loved them to the end. So notice he loved them based on what he knew or what he realized. Now what does he realize there? What does it say? When he knew his what? His hour had come. Now if you've been in this class long, you know that phrase, his hour has come, was used about seven times. And what does it refer to? His death, doesn't it? His death. So notice how he describes this death. When he knew his hour would come, first of all, he describes it as a departure. Look what he says. His hour had come that he should what? Depart from the world. See? Death is a departure from the world. Watch this. Death is a dis destination. Depart from the world to what? To the Father. So based on the fact that he knows he's going to die. He's going to depart. He's going to go back to the Father. He does something. He loves them all the way to the end. He doesn't say, well, I only have three days to live. You know what I think I'm going to do? Go down to the shore. Go to the beach. Spend these last three days enjoying myself. No, he's thinking of others based on the realization of his death. Now, there's a second realization that he has that motivates him to do something. Look what it is. I'm going to read that verse again. Just follow along. Now before the feast of the Passover, when he knew, when he realized that his hour had come that he should depart from this world and go to the Father, and then look at this. A second realization. Having loved his own who were in the world. Notice this. Based on previously loving them, guess what he does now? He loves them to the end. He doesn't stop. So there's two realizations. One, he's going to die, and second of all, based on his previous action, his entire ministry has been sacrificial giving, he loves them. Now, who does he love there? Who is the object of his love? Look what it says. He loved his own who were in the world. Now, what does that mean, he loved his own? Now, if you were with us the whole time, you know, way back in chapter 1, the scripture says, he came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as did receive them, him, to them, his own, he gave them the power to become the children of God. So his own represents the Jewish people, the people that he came to save. Some of them rejected him, some of them received him. Well, he's going to minister to his own who received him and who welcomed him. He's going to minister to the disciples. And that's a summary statement. Does that make sense? Okay, now we're going to look at the details. Verse 1 summarizes it. Now we go from the next verses. They, they fill out the details of what happened. So look at verse 2. And 
supper being ended. What supper? The last supper. He meets with his disciples. He has a meal. Then the supper being ended. And you know the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about that supper, don't they? How he lifted the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. And how he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. John doesn't tell us anything about the meal. You know what he tells us about? What happened after the supper. <laughs> so chapters 13 through 17 are all about what happens after the supper. These are post-supper events. So, verse 2. And supper being ended, now watch this, now he modifies the statement. And I'm going to say it like this. The devil, having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. See, uh, now we know it was after supper, It this, these events take place also after Satan is put in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. That's when he's going to love his disciples. And some practical, graphic way. Which tells us that Jesus knew that Satan had entered that Satan had entered Judas. And that Judas is going to betray him. It says it right there. Satan having entered in the heart of Judas to have him betrayed. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. You know, it didn't catch him off guard. In fact, it motivates him to do something. So, there's this awareness uh, that Satan has motivated Judas to betray him. And then I want you to notice what else he knows. He knows that Judas is going to betray him, but he also knows something else. Look at verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So he knows two things. Satan's going to betray him. The Father is giving everything into Jesus' hands. How much into Jesus' hands? everything into Jesus' hands. Does that mean that Satan's going to be successful? No, it means he's going to fail. There's two fathers in this verse. Really? Judas has a father. His father's the devil. Jesus has a father. His father is God. And guess what? Who's going to triumph? Satan or God? God's going to triumph. Who's going to triumph? Jesus or Judas? Jesus. God is putting everything, all authority, into Jesus' hands. And it goes on to say, and, not only that, that he, Jesus knew that God had put all things in his hands, and that he had come from God, he realized that God was the one that sent him, and he realized that he was going back to God. Which means he knew that he was going to die, but guess what? He knew death wasn't the end. He was going to be raised from the dead and go back to the Father. So, all of this is sort of leading up to this main action that Jesus takes. So, let's look at the action. Okay? Based on this awareness, look at the action. You still with me? Okay, look. Verse 4. Look what he did. He rose from the supper table. Now, notice the verbs. Rose. He rose from the supper table. Number 2. He laid aside his garment. Number three, he took a towel. And number four, he girded himself. <clears throat> now up until this time, Jesus has been reclining on his left elbow the way they ate during the first century in the Roman Empire. Even Jews ate that way. 
There were sofas, couches, formed in a horseshoe-type configuration, and the way people ate, the men, they reclined on their elbows, and they ate from a table that was below the couch. So Jesus rose from that. He got up from there. Now, where are the apostles? They're still reclining. Okay. So, he takes off his garments. Starts taking off his clothes. He takes off his robe. The only thing he has is his waist is covered. And then he takes a towel. And he wraps the towel around his waist. And he's standing there in the clothes of a slave who does menial tasks. And this is what's happening. And then verse 5 says, and after that, look what he did. He poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, how does he do this? If you, if you, if you were with us just a couple weeks ago, in a previous chapter, we saw somebody else washing somebody's feet and, and drying them. Do you remember who that was? That was Mary. Jesus was in another supper with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Simon, some, the, uh, another Simon. And, and uh, Judas was there, you'll remember. And the disciples. And Mary, Jesus is reclining, and Mary comes in, and she anoints his feet. And she dries his feet with her hair. And so we see a very similar situation. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he wipes them dry with the towel. Now, do you remember when Mary was doing that? The disciples didn't know what was going on. What in the world is happening? What are you doing? What is this woman doing here? Remember what Jesus said she was doing? She was preparing him for his death. She was washing his feet and his body for his death. That's how he explained it. They didn't have any idea what was going on. He said, look, let her do it. She is preparing me for death, for burial. Now I want you to keep that in mind. You can't forget that if you want to get what's happening here. Remember, she's preparing him for death. Okay? By washing his feet and wiping his feet dry. That's what Jesus does. Now, how does he do it? Well, the disciples are reclining on this couch. Jesus goes up behind the couch and he starts washing the feet of Judas. And then he takes the towel and he dries his feet. And he washes the feet of Andrew and he takes his towel. And now he comes to Peter. And look what Peter does. He asks a question. Look at verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? You know, it's one thing to wash their feet, but mine? You know, he really thinks he's important, you know. You washing my feet? He's shocked. Maybe he's embarrassed. We don't know. He just can't believe that Jesus is washing someone's feet. This is what a slave does. No one who has any dignity, any honor, any status would ever wash anybody's feet. Slaves wash feet. He says, you're washing my feet? And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered in verse 7. He said to him, and this is very important, 
what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But you will know after this. Peter, you don't understand. Don't, don't just let me do what I'm doing. You don't understand what I'm doing. You know, right now you're in the dark, but one day you're going to understand what I'm doing. I'm doing it for a reason, and the reason's not yet obvious to you. So just let me do it. Now, since Jesus says you don't understand what I'm doing, it becomes obvious that this is not just a typical foot washing. Jesus isn't just washing his feet. Peter would understand that. He's washing my feet. He shouldn't be doing it. You know. But it's not a typical foot washing. It means he's doing something beyond just washing feet. It, it signifies something else. So Jesus is just saying, Peter, be quiet. You know, let me do what I'm doing. Just observe what I'm doing, and later you'll understand what I'm doing. See? That's what he's saying. So, look at verse 7 as we go on. It's sort of a now and then statement. See? See, notice the now and then. What I am doing, that's right now, you do not understand, but then you will. So that's a now and a then. See the but right in the middle of that sentence? There's a contrast between now and then. Now you don't understand it, then you will. So, Peter... Just accept it on faith that I know what I'm doing. You don't, but I do. Just allow me to do what I'm doing. Okay? Now, we're going to call this Peter's first outburst. The form of a question. First time he puts his foot in his mouth. You're not going to clean my feet, are you? Yes, he is. <laughs> Just wait and find out why. Okay? okay, now we're going to have his second outburst. First one was a question. The second one is an objection. Peter says to him in verse 8, I love it, You shall never wash my feet. And this is a double negative, which in the Greek puts great emphasis. It means, you will never. No, I said never. Not now, not then, never. You'll never wash my feet. Now let me ask you a question. Why would he say this? I mean, Jesus just said, you don't understand what I'm doing. Just let me do it, and you'll learn a little later, right? Wouldn't Peter be wise just to say, well, go ahead. I'm going to find out what this is all about. But what does he do? He objects. That's Peter. He doesn't have the sense of the brains he was born with. That's just how he is. He can't keep his mouth shut. Peter's a know-it-all. He's like, oh, not me. You're not going to do it. Never. You'll never. I'm, look, I'm hiding my feet. You're not going to do this. Now, I don't know what's wrong with this guy, Peter. But this is just how Peter acts. Okay? So look what Jesus says. Look at his reaction. In the middle of verse 8, Jesus answered him and said, Well, Peter, if I do not wash you, then you're not going to have any part with me. You're not going to have part of what is mine. You're not going to be part of the kingdom. <laughs> you're not going to be part of this, this the great plan I have if you don't allow me to wash your feet. See? Uh, and that phrase there, no part, means, is, a, is a word that was used in the Old Testament to speak of an inheritance. Well, what's your part of the inheritance? You're not going to have any inheritance in what I'm doing. You're not going to be part of God's new people if you do not allow me to wash your feet. Okay? So he's just telling him that, you know, this is necessary. What I'm doing here is absolutely necessary if you're going to be part of what I'm doing. You're going to be part of my plans. This is absolutely essential that I do this. Okay. So now we have Peter's third outburst. And this is a great one. 
Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Now notice how he goes overboard. You see this? Not only if you're not just my feet, then, then do my elbows. You know, don't forget, don't forget that. You know, get touch it. Look, notice the extremes. This is amazing. First of all, he says, never. Never. Now what does he say? The whole enchilada, right? All of them. <laughs> Not even a drop. Hey, give me the whole bucket full. See, Peter's out of his mind. I mean, just obvious. This is face. This is this is Peter. So now he doesn't know what Jesus is doing, does he? Jesus wants to do what? Wash his feet. It's not just a typical foot washing. It means more than that. There's some hidden meaning that Peter doesn't understand. Jesus said, "Look, let me do it." You know, this is important. Peter says, well, look, just give me the whole pot. He still doesn't know what he's talking about. Why doesn't he say at this point, well, if it's that important, Jesus, please wash my feet. That's not Peter. Peter, <laughs> I know people like Peter. <laughs> and uh, it's very interesting. He's exuberant. You know, he's, he's a man of, uh, of extremes. So then look what Jesus says in verse 10. We have Jesus' third response. He said to him, Well, Peter, he who was bathed needs only to wash his feet. Now, Jesus is just using analogy. He says, Peter, you don't need to have, you don't need a whole bath. You don't need me to dump the whole thing over on you. And he's uh, just sort of using an analogy of a custom in the Old Testament. When you were invited to a banquet, one of those reclining banquets, not every meal was a reclining banquet. Your evening meal at home, you sat in chairs or on the bench. But when you were invited to a banquet like this, a Passover feast in the first century, you reclined. And when you were invited to that kind of a banquet, you took a bath before you showed up. You know, just like if you went to a banquet, you take a bath or a shower before you went. But because people wore sandals, To get from point A to the banquet hall or the home where they were going, their feet would get dirty. So when they entered in, the slave would, there'd be a basin and you would stop and the slave would wash your feet. That's all you needed. You didn't need a whole bath. He said, Peter, you got it wrong. <laughs> you don't need me to pour the whole basin on you. You just need to have your feet clean. Now, he's not talking about just dirt on the feet. Jesus is doing this in a symbolic way. It means something far beyond having your feet washed. He said, Peter, you just need to let me do what I'm doing. Let me wash your feet. So he's still having to deal with Peter. Can you imagine, how long is this thing going on? Jesus washing these 11 feet, and now he comes to Peter, and guess what? Peter, it's like Peter throws a wrench in the whole thing, doesn't he? He's going to have this big, long argument and discussion with Jesus. That's Peter. I mean, he almost ruins the whole thing. I mean. So Jesus says, you, know, you, you just need to have your feet washed. <clears throat> So he goes on to says, verse 10, He is bathed, he's only to have his feet washed, but is completely clean. And Peter and, and the others of you, this is a plural you, plural you, you all are all clean. You all are all clean. But then he adds this statement at the end of verse 10. But not all of you. There's one of you who isn't clean. 
And what's his reason for saying that? Look at verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. That's Judas, of course. Therefore he said, you're not all going Then look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, he'd taken his garments, took the towel off, he put his robe back on, and he sat down. And he sat down again. He sat down again. Which means here, the, the Greek word is reclined. And he reclined again. He took his position on the couch and he began to recline. And then he finally asked a question. After he reclines, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? Do you see an answer anyway? No, they don't have any idea what he's done to them. How about if I ask you, do you know what he's done to them? <laughs> well, <clears throat> this is where it gets very, you know, interesting. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, you know, they have no, those 12 guys have no idea what he's done to them. So, what has he done to them? We know what he's done. We know what he's done literally. But what does it mean? Okay? So, when you look at all the different commentaries, <clears throat> some commentaries that are written by Theologians of the Anabaptist movement, which like Mennonites and the Amish, they say Jesus is establishing a new sacrament, foot washing. And so if you go to one of these kind of churches, a Mennonite church or a Brethren church, and it's Sunday morning and they have the Lord's Supper, and you break the bread and drink the cup, you'll also get your feet washed. It's a new sacrament. Do you think that's what it means? I don't think that's what it means. He doesn't say that's what it means, right? Now, there's another idea that commentators offer. Is they says you see two things here in this. If you look at really look carefully, you see two things in these twelve verses. You see a table, and you see water. Table represents the Lord's Supper. The water represents baptism. Well, I can see how you could pull that out of there, but I don't know that that's really what it means. And then there are a lot of others saying, well, Jesus is just giving us an example of being humble. This is an example of humility. But there's no indication that that's what it means either. The word humble, and that concept isn't part of this picture. I think maybe later on in the chapter you'll see some of that. Some people say, well, what Jesus is showing that every day you need to have your sins washed away. When you get your bath, your baptism... All your past sins are washed away. And then every day you need to have confession and have your sins washed away on a daily basis and things like that. Well, that could make sense too. But I'm not sure that that's what it means. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an alternative explanation. <clears throat> okay? What's happening here is symbolic. There's no doubt about this. Jesus is uh, performing what we call an enacted parable. In other words, instead of telling a parable, parable of the prodigal son, you know, whatever, instead of telling a parable to drive home a point or to teach a lesson, Jesus acts out the parable. 
Okay, does that make sense? Instead of saying, there was a father who had a son, well, Jesus, instead of telling the story, Jesus actually acts out a story. Okay? And so we call this an enacted parable. Okay? It's a story that has symbolic meaning, and you're supposed to find the meaning within the symbols. So the first thing I want you to notice as we try to figure this out is that verses 1 through 12 are all about one thing. They're about death, aren't they? Yeah. Because you see in verse 1, it talks about his hour had come. That means death, right? You see in verse 2, Judas was going to betray him. And what does that mean? Death. <laughs> he's going to die because Judas betrays him. And in verse 3, you see he's going to go somewhere. He's going to go to his father, right? His father's going to give him all authority. And we know Jesus says in Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says that after he's resurrected. There's going to be a death. Okay? So this is all about death. That's number one. We also see something that's very symbolic. Jesus, in verse 4, lays aside his garments. He takes off his garments. Then we see in verse 11 or 12, he puts on his garments. Lays, lays off, puts on his garments. Now, if you can remember, and I know this is very hard to remember, but this language is very similar to what we've seen in the previous chapter. And I want you to turn to John chapter 10, just two chapters back. <clears throat> Lays aside his garments and then he takes up his garments in verse 12. And when you go to John chapter 10, look down at verse 17. John 10, 17. Here's what he says. Lays down his garments, takes up his garments. Now look at John 10, 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I do what? Lay down my life, that I might what? Take it up. Same words. <laughs> now, this, of course, isn't a parable. This is just literal. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to die. And guess what? I'm going to take it up again. I'm going to be resurrected. And that's exactly what he does in chapter 13 in symbolic form. He takes off his clothes. It's laying down his life. He puts on his clothes, and he represents resurrection. In verse 18, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to what? Take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. So there's the truth. He's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. And guess what? In chapter 13, we see that played out symbolically. And then it says that he sat down. And Jesus sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he has all authority over heaven and on earth. He's laying that out in sort of an enacted parable. He is the suffering servant. That's why he looks like a slave. He takes on the form of a servant. So he can die. And then God raises him up from the dead. Now, in the midst of all this, he's washing his disciples' feet. Now what does that represent? Well, it could be that it represents that when he dies on the cross, he dies for sins. And their sins are washed away. And I think that's, a, you know, definitely part of this whole concept. But there's something else as well. Remember when Mary washes Jesus' feet and she wipes his feet, what does he say she's doing it for? Preparing him for death. Now he's doing it to the disciples. And guess what he's doing? He's preparing them for death. See, because not only is he going to die, Mary's prepared him for death in a very symbolic way. He's preparing them to be ready to die as well. Because if you're not ready to die, 
which is represented in the war him washing their feet. You can't have any part of this kingdom. So you have to persevere to the end and be faithful to the end as well. And so I think that's what this passage is teaching. So while he says in verse 12 of chapter 13 to Peter, after he sits down, he says to them, you know what I have done to you, they would have to say, no. But I think that we've been able to discover what it really means. And of course, Peter and John and the others, after Jesus is resurrected, he goes back to the Father, he sits at God's right hand, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter stands up and he starts preaching. And he talks about how Jesus died, how he was raised from the dead, and how he sits down at the Father's right hand. That's the first sermon he preaches. Basically, he preaches what this enacted parable lived out. So that's John chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. We'll pick up at verse 13 next week. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we've been able to just walk through this passage slowly, carefully, with open eyes, curiosity, and I feel, Lord, that we've gotten a handle on a closer, closer to the truth than Peter ever had, simply because we kept our mouths shut. We wanted to learn. We, we want to be part of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to take this lesson to heart. Help, we thank you, Lord, that you were willing to die for our sins, raised for our justification, seated at the right hand with all authority making intercession for us. Help us now, Lord, to be faithful to you, even to the end. In Christ's name, amen.